Thank you, Rick. Good morning. And good morning again to Renew. It's great to be together again for the final Sunday of our Weather Report teaching series, which means summer's over, folks. I didn't hear the groans from Renew in West Court, but I know 80% of us here or so, at least I think 80% are wanting to respond to that in the same way, so let's just say it out loud together. There you go. Ready? What summer? Right? How many times have you said that? And if you had even one twinge of uh, hesitation at saying that out loud, way to go. I will take that as an indicator that you are working into your thinking. The main point of this teaching series for this summer is that you can't change the weather. But you can. Be ready for it. You can't change the weather. You can't change your circumstances. But you can be ready for them. And you have a lot of influence over how to think about it, how to prepare for them, how to live with the circumstances beyond your control. As we were told at the very beginning of the series, or very early, there's no such thing as bad weather, only poor clothing, right? A number of times this summer, I thought of an experience uh, that we had a number of years ago. Um, in the days before digital photography, when every single picture you took cost money to develop, every time you clicked the shutter, it was like, ka-ching, out of your pocket, not in. And you couldn't get instant feedback and just delete the bad ones before you printed them. Remember those days? Some of us do in here anyway. Well, back in the day, LaDonna, my wife, started a hobby photography business, uh, mostly wedding photography. She'd done a number of weddings and, and was really enjoying it. And then the son of, of one of our close friends and his bride, a family that we also knew, asked LaDonna to shoot their wedding. Okay, now the pressure's on. She planned a little bit more, learned a bit more, just to make it, get it all right. The day came, and the weather was <laughs> awful. Gray, steady rain that, that, that you could see would not be stopping anytime soon, and they wanted their pictures outdoors, natural light. LaDonna wasn't ready for anything else. Being Saturday, I was up well before LaDonna working on this, this Sunday deadline that I seemed to have. And, and the whole time I'm thinking, oh no, what's she going to do? What's she going to do? When she got up, she looked outside. She opened the front door and stood there. And stood there. And I was standing a few feet behind her, waiting quietly. Knowing that pretty soon I'd have to take some time to pick her up and calm her down. Help her focus. But I had no idea what to suggest. I mean, I'm a guy. Gotta, man's got to have a plan, right? I had no idea. I braced myself. She turned around and smiled. And the first thing she said was, well, I guess today we'll find out if I'm a real photographer. <laughs> I thought, whoa, go girl. And she went on. The weather is part of the picture, she said. It's part of the context, the environment. You've got to work with what you have and bring out the beauty that's there. Wow. She got dressed. She went out to Walmart and bought a bunch of cheap black umbrellas 
shot the day, took her photos to the store to have them develop. She came home. She rested well that night. Next day, Sunday afternoon, we picked up her photos. She opened the envelope and she said, yes, my best wedding yet. The weather, your circumstances, the situation you find yourself in today, this year as you go into the fall, the environment God has given you to work with, to create a picture that portrays his beauty, his goodness, and his glory. I hope that's the mindset you've, you've wanted to work in helping you, you develop yourself this summer. The question I've spoken into a little bit, and we'll wrap it up today, is the question, how can we create an inner climate which we can influence? that helps me develop that kind of perspective. An attitude of, well, confidence, but, but humble confidence. A huge factor in how we think about our circumstances has to do with how we think, period. Our inner ruts that direct our more outward thoughts. Different kinds of weather, storms, sunny days, long-term dreary days, tend to trigger different kinds of feelings, which, if left unchecked, become ruts, attitudes, which determine how we think. That's where we need to do our big work, at that underneath climate level. We can't change the weather, but we can change how we look at it by changing the climate of our hearts, our heart climate is a climate we do have a significant degree of control over. We talked several weeks ago about the key indicator of a heart climate that can handle any weather. What was that? Gratitude. More than just polite words or, or dutiful actions, but words and actions that come out of a grateful heart. But how do I develop a grateful heart? How do I develop that humble confidence that can look at every circumstance and say, well, I guess today we'll see whether I really am who I say I am. There's one key quality that I can develop in my inner being. One key attitude that comes out of the kind of renewal of our minds from Jesus living in me. Probably the best single passage in God's word that nails it Write down is the conclusion to Paul's great letter to the church in Philippi, chapter 4. Philippians, chapter 4. Turn there. Uh, if you want to quickly download a Bible app, there's a... Um, whoops, we're, one, we're a bit ahead of ourselves here. There we go. Philippians 4, bibleapp.com. Download that, and you can turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. Paul talks about a key quality... Probably the best single passage in God's word that nails it right down is this conclusion to the letter of Paul to Philippi. Let's just read two lines in this paragraph to begin with to sort of set the context about what we're going to talk about today. Chapter 4, verse 11. I have learned, says Paul, to be content. Whatever the circumstance. What's the condition of a heart that works out and, and that, that displays itself in gratitude, it's contentment. What is contentment? Well, I, all week as I was studying this week, I thought, okay, how can I define 
the kind of contentment, or how can we define the kind of contentment the Bible talks about? I think it's just this. Contentment is a, a settled peace of heart that is rooted in, that grows out of a humble, trusting confidence in God, and that leads us to be satisfied with what I have in God and does not demand that life delivers on what I thought I was really wanting. Let me, let me, let me just repeat that. A peace of heart that is rooted in, that grows out of a humble, trusting confidence in God, and that leads us to be satisfied with what we have in God and does not demand that life delivers on what it was we thought we were really wanting. Is that how people would describe you? Is that how you feel about yourself? Or are you like, well, the old, the old story of the family at supper time, as they sit down at the table waiting for the last few things to be ready, the youngest daughter says, let's go around the circle and have everyone say their favorite food. And so the oldest brother chimes in first, hamburger. The older sister, a little bit more sophisticated, says, oh, I love mom's Parmesan chicken. Mom said, oh, my favorite is pizza. <laughs> you can drag that in. The youngest daughter said, hot dogs. Can have hot dogs every day. And before dad can answer, the youngest daughter chimes in, says, I know what daddy's favorite is. It's anything we haven't got. That's contentment or discontentment. That's a definition of discontentment. Liking, demanding what we haven't got. How do you complete this line? I, I can't be satisfied until you've got something in your heart, in your mind. Or more positively, I will be satisfied when. How do you complete that line? There's a statement later on in this paragraph in Philippians chapter 4 that says, we like this one. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now that's, that's a worthy pump me up, help me reach my goals mantra, isn't it? I can, do, I can get what will satisfy me by God's strength. And we miss understanding what, what Paul's talking about, which is our mindset when our goals are not being achieved, when our dreams are not being realized. What Paul is inviting us to do is to say to ourselves, because of the power of the presence of Jesus in me, I can do all things, even be content. When my goals aren't being achieved, my dreams aren't being realized. Here's Paul. Bound in chains in prison, knowing that his end is in sight. Writing a book that fleshes out some basic teaching on how in Jesus our own limits will never have to limit us and define us. It, it's a book that exudes positivity and has had such a powerful and positive impact over the centuries. He, he ends the book by revealing his secret. I have learned. It's not a natural disposition. 
And it just just didn't come over him like a sudden wave and, and take over. I have learned to be content in everything and in spite of everything. I have come to know by experience that although everything around me can be taken away, everything, and that's the way it was for Paul, nobody can take away the presence and the power of God's Spirit living in me. A spirit, the literal relational presence of God in me that actually caused most of Paul's negative experiences, most of his suffering was caused because of the presence of Jesus in him. But because I know that the spirit in me keeps me safe for my final destination and empowers me to do what God calls me to do, I've learned to be content with whatever life throws at me. We're going to come back to this paragraph at the end today just a little bit, but we won't won't work through it systematically like we often do because after Thanksgiving, we're going to begin a teaching series on this whole book of Philippians called Unlimited. And we will get to this passage close to Christmas time, perhaps the time of the year when we need to be reminded again about contentment, right? This morning, we're going to do two things for the rest of our time together. We're going to touch down on a few passages in the Bible, the the one true story that explains our story, to see why discontent is our natural bent and what we need to do about it. And number two, we're going to come back to this Philippians 4, just get a few key pointers on how to develop that contentment. So the first thing I need to do is I need to recognize, name it, and repent of the discontent in my heart. We're going to spend most of our time this morning on this part because this is where we get hung up. We become very sophisticated at at putting the lipstick on the pig of discontent, right? Oh, it's not hard to recognize it, but we don't repent of it. We actually defend it, and we put a positive spin on it. We have actually come to call discontent a virtue. Probably one of the most famous sayings of his, Thomas Edison, restlessness is discontent, and discontent is the first necessity of progress. Show me a thoroughly satisfied mind and I will show you a man and I will show you a failure. Really? We believe that stuff. We believe it not because it's true, but because it helps us rationalize our own discontent, right? We forget, for example, that it's, that it's this kind of thinking that fuels and drives a version of, well, in our culture, a version of capitalism that has become destructive greed and devouring consumerism that distorts and, and twists some very good principles. There's something in us that is prone to buy into this distorted logic that discontent is a necessity for progress and for growth. Well, there is one piece to that, and we'll get to it later. So let's look at the story that, under, that helps us understand our story and, and, and see what it tells us. The first thing we come to in, in the book of Genesis chapter 3, right at the very beginning, is that Even in a perfectly good world, the evil one recognized our potential for discontent. They were content. They were at peace. They were fruitful. Everything was working out well until the evil one came and pointed out the one thing 
the one thing that God had said was out of bounds for them, and suddenly everything good, everything healthy, everything positive in their environment paled in comparison to that one little fruit, which was nothing special. They became convinced that that one fruit held the secret to becoming what only God is. Gary Thomas, in a, in, in a wonderful book, some of you do some reading in Gary Thomas, and my favorite book of his is called Authentic Faith, The Power of a Fire-Tested Life. I've read it three times. It's a great book just to work into your heart. He says, the very first sin which radically altered the nature of this world and human existence as we know it wasn't violence. It wasn't lust. It wasn't substance abuse or blasphemy or murder or lying or stealing or crossing sexual boundaries that God created or even gossip. The first sin, a sin of the heart that led to every other sin was discontent. Not being satisfied with what I have, with what God gives. Not believing that what God is giving us and has given us is enough. We are genetically biased from that first human pair toward discontent. By the way, did you know that our, that our brain is actually wired for discontentment? Thomas, in his book, points out that, that neurologists call this a state called tolerance. It's a way of describing how our brain actually becomes accustomed to the status quo, the way things are, both inside and, and, and out. It's what happens, for example, with, with, well, substance abuse. We know that. Addictions. You put chemicals in your body and eventually the chemical makeup of your brain just learns to tolerate the amount of drugs you use. It sort of develops a new status quo and so withdrawal becomes difficult because it upsets the new status quo. And increasingly, more and more brain researchers are beginning to believe that non-substance addictions, sexual addictions, other addictions operate the same way. We are physically wired, they say, so that we become comfortable with what we have and we need more to get that high to feel content and so once we become accustomed to something it's only a matter of time that we become bored with it right and that's what produces that never enough syndrome in our hearts the book of Numbers, the, the fourth book of Torah, the, 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 the books of Moses in the Old Testament, was recorded and, and included in our story to help us to see the danger of discontent. Several weeks ago, we, we saw that, that three days from the powerful deliverance from God through the Red Sea out of Egypt, three days into their journey, the people of God start grumbling against God with Moses and Aaron, their leaders, taking the brunt of it. They don't like this business of living by trusting God, even though they had just experienced the greatest deliverance from God that, that was imaginable. They can't get it through their heads that it made no logical sense that, to think that the God who delivered them from Egypt, who parted the Red Sea, was about to abandon them now? Really? But God graciously comes, graciously comes through with, with a, a miraculous bread delivery every single morning. 
coming down from heaven and every single evening meet landing alnem quail they didn't even have to do any work for it except go and gather it some of them probably said why do, why do we even have to gather it why can't he just make plates and put it on it right never enough and within a few weeks they arrive at mount sinai where they have this dramatic display of god's power and god's glory and are given his words as a constitution a life constitution to live by no guesswork and an organizational chart to structure their life under him no long negotiations and consultations and power tripping boom there there it is and they set off for what should be about get this a 14 day journey from mount sinai to the land of promise somewhere between 14 and 20 days and that journey is recorded in the book of numbers and guess what happens how many days into this journey from sinai to the promised land 3 days 3 days you think somebody would have said hey we've been here before remember they start grumbling chapter 11 verse 4 it says the rabble that was with them rabble it's it's referring to a group of people who saw what god was doing for his people and said hmm we like that can we come along and god has said sure you're to be a blessing to all nations so so they come on and become part of the journey but these people who wanted the goodies of god and not the goodness of god and it says they began to crave other food this time it's not because there's no food this time it's because the menu doesn't change it's boring and here's the deal just like in the garden of eden the people of god who were enjoying the goodness of god start listening to these other people they have invited in and they trip once again on the very same stumbling stone wired for discontent they see not what they have but what they didn't have and they become discontent it says again the israelites started wailing and said if only we had meat to eat well they did but it was just the same meat every day we remember the fish we ate in egypt at no cost also the cucumbers melons leeks onions and garlic but now we've lost our appetite we never see anything but this manna folks we're only 3 days into this 14 day journey a land flowing with milk and honey a land god has already guaranteed them that they don't have to earn and they don't deserve we can handle 14 days 10 more days folks that's all but as the book of number goes numbers goes on it's even it's even the spiritual leaders the priests and the levites the worship leaders and it goes all the way to Miriam and Aaron Moses inner circle his brother and his sister that get infected with the virus of discontent and a, a 14 day journey becomes 40 years why discontent king solomon many years later describes discontent and the results of it 
In the book of Proverbs, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's one of his key themes. Probably confessions from his own journey of discontent. Proverbs 14, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Discontent will bring on physical symptoms. Proverbs 27, just as death and destruction are never satisfied, so human desire, literally the eyes of a human is never satisfied. Discontent. In Ecclesiastes, better one handful with tranquility, contentment, than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Ecclesiastes 6, all men's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. You see, only a contented heart can ever be a thankful heart. If you find that you can't be grateful from the bottom of your heart, that thanksgiving is just words, the reason somewhere in there is a discontentment of heart. You got to repent of it. Dissatisfaction, discontent is, is so, well, it's a fruit that looks so appealing. We're convinced that without discontent, we'll never be what we we're called to be. Discontent, discontent is sort of like anger for athletes. A lot of athletes are tempted to think of anger as a fuel that propels them to do their best. Occasionally, you will even see here coaches saying, well, they're angry, and that's what I like. But we know that's not true. You get an opposing player angry, you can beat him every time. Because anger impairs our judgment. It limits our focus, our perspective. It's skewed. Just like discontent. It feels like it's motivating us, inspiring us, strengthening us, but it's like a, it's like a rocket without a guidance system. Don't buy into that line that discontent is good. So where, how, how is your discontent coming to the surface? Is my discontent surfacing in the way I can't have long-term relationships, bouncing from job to job, negative influence in my family, my work? Is it coming out in your demands of other people, of, of, of life and of God? I won't be content until. Where is it? I wonder if it's a pervasive discontent that is at the roots of a lot of our sexual identity crises and sexual expression demands today, is it? Let's deal with the root. And according to the story that is the explanation for all of our stories, the Bible, it is discontent that is the root cause of our money issues. In book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is a bunch of meaninglessness. Several years ago, I, I read a book by Wayne Schmidt called uh, Managing Your Spiritual Assets in a Bottom Line World. It's a great book for men. And he comments on this verse and he says, there's no direct relationship between money and contentment, except that the more you expect from money, the less it delivers. There's a direct relationship between money and discontent. 
And he says, the difference between worry and freedom rests in changing your, consumer, your, your consumption patterns by only a few percentage points. By spending 95% versus 105%, right? In other words, telling your hearts enough already about not enough. Back to that relationship between thankfulness and contentment. There's two ways to live. You can live by gift or you can live by grasp. A person who lives out of contentment can see life and everything as a gift from the hand of a good God and will be thankful. A person who lives out of discontent will always be grasping for more and it will just fuel his discontent. I remember being invited for supper to someone's house years ago. I was 22 years old. Uh, I was a single youth pastor making less than $10,000 a year and living in the highest cost of living county in Canada. If I ever had a reason to live by grasp instead of by gift, I had it. I was about to be married. And I knew that that would cost more money. At this dinner... There just happened to be another guest at the table that the host was most anxious for me to meet. After some small talk, the guest asked me, Mel, how much more money per year would it take for you to achieve the things you really want to achieve? <laughs> some of you know where this is going. I had no idea. I was, I was a naive 22-year-old. Know those multi-level marketing things? Okay. So he asked me a question. I said, I don't know. I've never thought about that. And then he said, well, well, let's say you had another five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 a year. What, what would you be able to do with that? He named a few things, and I didn't bite. Finally, he pulled out his trump card. He knew he had me with this one. Mel, you're, you're a pastor, and you want to grow in being a good pastor, right? I'm sure. Wouldn't you like to be able to have a tool to help other people make more money to help themselves out? By this time, I'd had enough, and, and I was confident enough in our relationship that, well, maybe I said the right thing, maybe I didn't. But I said to him, you know, I'm getting this weird sense of deja vu, like I'm part of a conversation that's happened before, like maybe in a garden somewhere in paradise. Sounds to me like you're trying to make me discontent with what I have and covet what I don't have. I said it. I wish I could say I've always lived with that kind of purity of focus and heart and naive trust in God's provision. It's tough. It's not natural, is it? But it's right. So the first step for some of us this morning is to look honestly in the mirror and recognize that it's our discontent that is destroying us, not the weather, not our circumstances. We need to leverage our feelings of discontent by looking in the mirror, looking under the hood deeply and think deeply about what our discontent is saying about us because we will never be content until we become discontent with one thing, our discontent. That's the starting point. But here's the deal. You can't become content by just trying to stop discontent. You can't focus on becoming less discontent. You recognize it, you repent of it, and go all in to focus on being content.
And how do I do that? Well, let's go back to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. Turn on your Bibles and, and just read a few things with me. Number one, revel in the fullness and richness of God's love for you. Rejoice in, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. The more things we have, the more things we think we need, including experiences, the more things become a barrier to us journeying with God like he wants for us. Contentment does not come by satisfying our appetites with what we think we want or need. Contentment comes by satisfying our appetites with the one who satisfies. Rejoice in the Lord. Years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had said this. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. Come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen, and I will tell you where to get food that is good for the soul. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen, for the life of your soul is at stake. I am ready, says God, to make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all of the mercies and unfailing love that I promised David. Seek the Lord while you can still find him. Call on him now while he's near. As we learn to rejoice in God, what our hearts naturally put up for us as barriers to contentment actually become doorways into the depth of a beautiful and powerful relationship with God. Rejoice in the Lord. I'm thinking back to the statement I read several weeks ago from that book of John Dickerson's I Am Strong about why good music is important, why it's important to sing together as we gather. Oppressors, he said, may steal your home, your money, or even your identity, but they can never steal your songs. Not the ones you carry in your blood. What's a good song? Well, a good song. It's got to be. Among good songs, it's got to be songs of joy. Songs which inspire joy in God by their lyrics and by their music. Rejoice in the Lord. Number two. Give your needs and your desires over to God. Verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, presenting your request to God is more than just asking God for something. Presenting your requests to God is to give that need and the need for that need over to God. 
There's a very simple test to see whether we've actually presented our requests to God, whether we actually put them there. When we present our requests to God in the way that Paul talks about, something happens. Verse 7, and when we do that, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, is going to guard our hearts and minds. Guard our hearts and minds from what? Discontent. Guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Sometimes it doesn't happen right away. Sometimes there's a lot of struggling that's associated with it. But there comes a time when we have given our needs to God that our minds wake up and say, hey, you know, I've, if I've given these over to God, I'm no longer carrying them. I no longer have the weight. He does. And then when that realization hits us, well, probably not hits us. Sometimes it might, but just gradually takes over. We begin to realize that it's no longer discontent that is dictating us. Contentment is taking over. But we're not done. Ever notice how our minds tell us, uh, tend, to, uh, tend to think of the worst possible scenario? The most cynical spin we can put on things? And when someone challenges us about that, and we say, you know, isn't that a bit cynical? What's the comeback? Oh, you're so naive, right? We may think in our cynicism that, we'll be, that we're being realistic. But we will also never be content. And so the third thing I need to do, according to Paul here in Philippians, is to steer my minds to think right thoughts about God. I think, and we'll explore that more sometime later, I think when Paul says this next statement, he's calling us to think thoughts about God that are right. Whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, these are all descriptors of God, right? Think about those things. Number four. Here's a big one. Have as your models and hang around people who are contented in God. Verse 9, Paul says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the peace of God will be with you. Pull yourself out of the circle of people who are negative towards others, who are always cynical about their environment, who are dissatisfied with everything. Envy, bitterness, cynicism, sarcasm, all of those behaviors and attitudes come out of and they feed discontentment. Pick companions of contentment and models of contentment. Contented people are not boring people. They're not passive people. Truly contented people are, can allow the life and joy to spring up. And out of them, they laugh a lot at positive things. And finally, teach yourself that contentment and circumstances are not related. Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. 
I know what's, what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in what, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And finally, I said finally before, didn't I? This is the last finally. Be content of God's power in you. I can do all things who gives me strength. Even be content. As I thought about that this week, I had this funny thought. I'm not trying to be trite or cute, but folks, we do. We do have the solution for climate change, for the literal climate change out there. It's right under our nose. Can you imagine the impact in this world if everyone lived with a sense of God's enoughness, no need for more, what would happen if those of us who claim to believe the story that we have that interprets our story, what would happen if those of us who claim to believe that lived as if it was true with, with, with a contented sense of enoughness? And what would happen if we made as our primary message, not battling some issue that's in the world out there, but the primary message, the truth of a heart change that would bring the contentment we were created to have and that God has given himself to return us to. And that is what Jesus calls us to share together again this morning. To remind our hearts where contentment actually comes from. To declare and celebrate the contentment of being right with Him through Jesus, being found in Him, in Jesus. That that is the environment that we live in. And because of that, we can be content and like Jesus said, a well of water flowing out to others into everlasting life. So as we start thinking about this ceremony that we're going to share together, I'm thinking it's possible and probable that as Jesus is introducing this ceremony to his disciples just before he died, I'm thinking that on his mind, one of the things on his mind was that passionate plea by the prophet Isaiah that we read earlier when he said, take, eat, my body broken for you, take and drink the life of my blood for you. Listen again to Isaiah's plea in light of the death of Jesus and what he's inviting us into in this experience. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have nothing to bring to pay for it. Come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why are you spending your money on food that doesn't give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen, I will tell you where to get food that is good for the soul. Come to me. Jesus literally said that. 
Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen, for the life of your soul is at stake. And I know that what the prophet Isaiah was talking about that he may not have known about, I know it's this ceremony that that God is referring to with Isaiah chapter 55 when he says, I am ready to make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the mercies and unfailing love that I promised David. The cross of Jesus Christ is the outpouring of God's love. The covenant of peace between you and God if we receive it. That's what it is. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him now while he is near. And so, as we share in this covenant again today, would you, would you see this as God's invitation to you to come to him, to be forgiven by him in Jesus, to be filled by him through his spirit. Come and eat and be satisfied. This is not just a ritual, but in taking and receiving physically, we are recognizing that's what we're doing in a holistic sense. Receive him, Jesus, and make that transfer again. His goodness for my gap and all the things that I think of are gaps. His death for my life. Receive and give yourselves to live by his great gift. His freeing grace, His power and grace, all for Him, all in Him, filled with Him. That is the only true way to rise above discontentment. So worship team and servers in, in Renew.